that's kind of what I would describe as radical clarity. Constantly looking at what's going on, establish how this makes sense, if this makes sense, if this is what you wanted, and if this is what you planned. And if not, amend your strategy along the way to be able to accommodate these changes. Welcome to From the Dorm Room to the Boardroom, a podcast where we provide insights, tips, and inspiration for college students and young professionals so they can make a really successful transition from college life to the professional world and beyond. My name is Andy Malinsky, and I'm your host. I'm also a professor of organizational behavior and international management at Brandeis University's International Business School, where we record and produce this podcast. Robert Harari is 21 and runs a tech startup but refuses to wear a hoodie and jeans to work. He runs a platform that connects startups with investors and enables them with the tools they need to grow, but despises startup culture as we know it. He has a fundamentally different way of envisioning and mapping his company's growth that avoids thinking in buzzwords. He believes in growing on a balance between hustle, radical clarity, and grounded but intense optimism. In the same way, Mark Zuckerberg runs the most successful social network in history, but may be the most socially awkward founder on the planet, Robert may be the least startup-y founder you have met in a long time. And so let us meet him. Thanks, Robert, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's start by, uh, by having you tell our listeners about your job, about, about what you do, about your company, about your job, and also actually about the transition from college to what you do. Sort of the, you know, set the stage for us. Yeah, so sure thing. So I'm 21. I'm the uh, founder and CEO of 1H. Uh, we're building an online platform that connects startups with a global pool of investors and partners based on their shared financial and strategic interests. So based on what they have in common and their ability to be able to work together. Uh, we built a software called Investor ID that takes into account all of our investors' uh, investment interests and all of our partners' partnership interests, and then pinpoints opportunities with startups through our platform that would excite them the most. And that saves everybody a lot of time and makes for a lot more meaningful interactions uh, on the platform. Uh, the goal of the company was to consolidate a very scattered startup ecosystem. When you're starting a company, and I'm actually very fortunate to be starting a company, so I get to be a customer and build for my own needs. There's very little guidance. I mean, there's no rule book. When you're starting something inherently disruptive, there's not a lot of systems in place by design because this is something brand new. So there's not a lot of systems in place that would actually help you get there. 1H uh, was built to actually be able to provide startups with a place to take them to what I like to describe as from idea to IPO with all of the resources that they would need. So everything from capital to strategic partners that could open up new sales channels for them or enhance their product to uh, exposure to the public, exposure to the press and things on that end. So basically everything that a startup would need or an early stage company would need to evolve and grow most effectively. So that's kind of the basics of what we're building. But uh, I started the company while I was in college, while I was in GW. I founded it out of my frat house uh, with one of my close friends and actually a friend of my older brother's, Data. 
But I had been working in this space. I'd actually been working in marketing venture capital since I was about 15 years old. So I had been uh, kind of well-averse in this for a pretty long time. So you're so 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 that's interesting. So you're you're at a frat house, and I imagine by frat house you just you just mean that like that's where you live. So like you're you're the equivalent of the dorm room, essentially. Yeah, it was exactly. It was the it was the school sponsored frat house. So yeah, right. Technically, yeah. <laughs> so and, and it's funny because exactly. the name so yeah, like the title of this podcast is from the dorm room to the boardroom. But you were literally your boardroom was your dorm room. It sounds like. No, I was literally making investor calls from my frat house. And if you listen closely in the back of those, you could hear kids playing Madden. <laughs> right. So, so, so actually, so you said you went, you, you went to GW. That's, can you, can you, that's George Washington University, right? Yeah. So I went to the George Washington uh, University's Elliott School of International Affairs. So I was studying uh, international affairs and international economics out there. And so, what? Tell us about your college experience. Were you? Um, I mean, it sounds like you had a foot in the "quote unquote" real world and a foot in college. Did you like college? What did you major in? Like, just tell us a bit about the college experience and how that how you transitioned from there to what you're doing now. Yeah, definitely. So, I had been working since I was 15, since I was in high school. I actually found my first investment opportunity when I was in detention for cutting class for making a conference call uh, when I was 17. Uh, I was leading the investment arm of a company called Research Frontiers. I was their director of market development. And so I was in charge of also and part of what I did was uh, managing their investment arm. So I was kind of, I mean, if you read my yearbook profiles, students wrote bios for one another in our yearbook. And in mine, it was if you see someone walking down the hallway in a suit on the phone holding an iced coffee, it's Robert Arari 100% of the time. So I had always been very much in between Know, the real world, quote unquote, and the bubble that was education, the education system. When I got to college, that became more and more present. That divide became so much larger and so much more consequential, I would say is the best word for it. You know, my company 1H was finally starting to ramp up. The idea was starting to turn into a reality. We were attracting, we were attracting the interest of some investors and our team and our product was well underway. And things were beginning to move. But what was happening is I went to school in DC, uh, which is about 250 miles away from the rest of my team in New York. So I actually spent two days out of the week in New York and then the remainder in DC and then would split weekends between the two. So I was traveling hundreds of miles each week, which was pretty mentally tasking and ultimately kind of put me in this situation where I felt that I was chasing two rabbits. You chase two rabbits, you lose them both. I felt that I was not committing the time that I needed to to my company at a time where this idea really needed to start to make its, I mean, bring itself to life. But at the same time, I wasn't performing as well as I usually do in school. And when you're in high school, at least for me, it was pretty easy to because I could, I could fake my way through a test. I could cram 15 minutes before and get everything I need to and memorize information. When it came to college, the workload was harder than ever. I was studying in a competitive school where students were dedicating 100% of their time to that, whereas I was hardly dedicating 50% of my time to that. So I felt myself falling behind my peers at school. But then when it got to work, I was also competing with other founders who were dedicating 100% of their time to their company and not, and not splitting that between their company and school. So I felt myself dividing my attention in two places that would have required 100% of my attention 
to be able to be my best self. And that became really frustrating. And, you know, I, I hear so many people who uh, talk about college or speak about their experience at college and they say, oh, you know, none of it was relevant to me and that's why I left school or something like that, or I was too good for college. I don't see things that way. I very much enjoyed being in college, but I could not be my best self. I could not be the best student that I needed to be because my heart and my company was somewhere else. I found myself just just abandoning school at a time where I felt I really needed to. And so that was my biggest struggle as a student. And I wish I could give, you know, I wish I could say there was a secret balance that I was able to find between school and my job, but there wasn't. It was something that required too much of my attention on both sides. And that was, you know, a really big moment for me to make the decision of where do I commit myself? And ultimately I committed myself to 1H, ended up moving into moving to New York and taking night classes in New York at NYU. But uh, I ultimately made that decision because I said, I want to be able to dedicate myself in one city, in one place to something that I'm passionate about. And my father was actually the one who told me, go for it. Take this company, take this thing you're passionate about and dedicate yourself to it because you can't live in two spaces like this. Um, So that that was a really interesting thing for me and a really interesting existential crisis at a pretty young age to be able to deal with. But I think I made the right. I think I made the right decision, and I'm happy yeah, with what I do now. Very, uh, very thoughtful way of describing all that. So, I, I think this actually is a great segue to to what we'll call the advice section of our discussion. And, and I'll ask you a couple of couple of questions. Um, and I think you'd be a great person to give some advice and some perspective. So, the, the first question is: um, What two to three, you know, it could be one even uh, real misconceptions do you think young People have when when entering the workforce, and I know you you have you have just your own experience, but you've probably seen others, and you probably have some thoughts about it. What what misconceptions do people do you think young people have, or mm-hmm. recent recent yeah, college definitely. grads, recent college grads, or just in general people entering into the workforce? Yeah, I think, um, yeah. You know, I don't think I could speak for your run of the mill workplace necessarily, because in my professional history, the most exposure I've ever had to a corporate environment or larger corporate environment was through my client interactions. But I've, you know, but from there I could tell you a lot of what I've seen from people growing inside of my own team and people, you know, moving up the ranks inside of my own team as well as the experiences that I've seen in growing my own company. Yeah, absolutely. So some of the misconceptions I've seen two big ones. The first is people see starting a company or even entering the workforce in general as having some kind of finish line. People look at companies that quote unquote made it or executives that quote unquote made it. And they try to mimic their growth trajectory in the hopes of making it themselves. But I could almost guarantee you that the leadership at these companies don't think they've made it. The leadership at companies that made it are constantly looking ahead by design. That's what makes them such incredible leaders. But in doing that, and kind of the curse of doing that, is they are more aware than anyone that problems never really go away. They just evolve and change with your company. So that would be the first misconception is there is no finish line. And while you could get a promotion or you could raise another round of financing, all that'll do is change your responsibilities. The only reason that you've been trusted with that is because the people who've entrusted you with that, so either be a round of financing or your new promotion at a larger company, is because they think you have the leadership capabilities to be able to take whatever challenges come your way. 
So there is no finish line. Your problems are just going to change. Uh, would be the first would be the first misconception that I think a lot, a lot of people see. The second, and this is one that I see more than ever, especially when starting a company, is people like to strategize a lot. I like to strategize a lot. Strategizing is easy. It's rewarding. It makes you feel like you've achieved something just because you've announced a solution and a plan to get there. I mean, physically speaking, it literally releases a shot of dopamine down the body. So it triggers your reward system to tell you to pack, pack up your things, go home, and pat yourself on the back. But executing, getting it done, actually going forth with that plan, that's the frightening part. Because there is a chance that you're going to have to accept that the strategy that you just patted yourself on the back for didn't work, and that you're going to have to go back to the drawing board. And so what I've learned is that the best leaders know how to marry execution and strategy. So during execution, my advice to people would be, again, whether you're starting a company or gunning for that promotion or working on whatever you need to for one of your clients, lean into negative feedback on your plan. Lead into all those little failures that you've seen along the way. Understand it quickly before everything else falls apart. Understand it fast, fast enough to amend your strategy and then continue executing. Create this feedback loop where you're constantly looking back at all the things that have happened and quantify success along the way. That's kind of what I would describe as radical clarity. Constantly looking at what's going on. Establish how this makes sense, if this makes sense, if this is what you wanted, and if this is what you planned. And if not, amend your strategy along the way to be able to accommodate these changes. Because changes are going to pop up. Nothing ever goes according to plan. And the best leaders know how to marry these two things. Know how to marry strategy and execution. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's re- that's that's really really interesting, and, and it actually brings me to the third question because I was it's funny I was going to ask this question as you were as you were talking. It's 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 nice that it that it's set up here for us, which is when you think to college, then what you learned in college, you know, you just talked about execution is being so critical and sort of feedback and in in that process and getting into that cyclical process and being willing to accept it and figuring out ways to get it and so on. Did you learn any of that in college? Is that just something that you developed? And in what from college was, if anything, was useful to you? Yes. Yeah, so one, there's two kind of big things that I'll always carry with me from my time at GW. The first is that my strategy of trying to just fake it like I used to in high school you know, study for a test 15 minutes before, whatever it be, write a paper in two hours, just wouldn't work. I remember one time I actually wrote a paper. I thought that I was, you know, I thought that I was going to be able to fake my way through this paper. I submit this 15 page paper. I did so poorly that my professor didn't submit comments. He sent me a recording, a 15 minute recording, going line by line on my paper, walking through every single thing that I had done wrong on this thing. I mean, down to how I'd even formatted this. I did every single thing wrong because I thought I could just wing it. And that taught me a really important lesson, which is winging it doesn't work as well as you think it does. When you're in high school or when you're just studying for test by test and you're being graded on things like that, it's kind of easy to if you're just regurgitating information. But one thing that I saw in college is that it required a lot more understanding of what was going on. And you had to train yourself to think critically. And it was only after I got that big wake-up call from that teacher that I trained myself a lot more to think critically, think uh, at least about like any objective that was being handed to me. 
And I've extended that to how I think about my clients. There's no more just get to the yes and then figure out what to do later. It's you know establish how my company was going to be able to take on this project, do it the right way, plan ahead, regardless of whether or not we got the yes. I'd rather have my team set up to execute on a project and then get told by told no by a client than get told yes by a client and then have my team scramble to figure out how to do it and watch it all fall apart. Uh, so one thing I would say is that I've learned from college is make an effort to understand the problem or understand the uh, the project in front of you, the thing that's being put on put on your table. I mean, put on your desk. Understand that as best as you can, so you could execute on it effectively. Take that extra ten minutes, fifteen minutes to really understand it and sit on it would be one. But then the second is a little more. So that was kind of a life lesson. But there is one actual piece of a piece of literature or piece of advice I would say that I've directly executed on for my company. Uh, and that's something I learned in one of my classes on Marine Corps strategy. So it was this class in the International Affairs Department on Marine Corps strategy. It was a 20-person class taught by a major in the US Marines who did tours in Iraq and Afghanistan with 19 ROTC students coming in full uniform and me coming in in sweatpants with an iced coffee. And I did terribly in that class. But one thing stuck with me that I found was the most useful for our company. And that was something that they call the five-paragraph order. The five-paragraph order is how Marines, and, and from what I remember, the military in general, actually inform everybody involved on a strategy on what is going on and their role inside of that strategy. So the way that it works is situation, mission, execution, administration, and command or communication. Basically, it guides how objectives move from the command center to the people on the ground with their rifles in hand. Makes everybody aware of the situation, the solution they'll be executing on, what their superiors and their peers are doing to execute on that solution, and where they specifically fit into executing on that solution. Then lastly, the logistics and resources that they'll actually use to do their part. So this makes sure that everyone's on the same page and know how they fit into this larger thing. So I use this or a form of this. I don't mimic it exactly, but I use this approach in communicating strategy to my team. I start with, hey, this is the problem we're trying to solve. Then I go down. I say, this is the goal and this is the solution and this is my intent and this is the strategy that we plan to go for. Now, I don't micromanage every element, but making sure everyone knows what's going on and where they fit into it is really important. So a good example actually is uh, the launch of our product. Every single week, I come in and revisit where we are on the launch of our product and I move from there. So right now, I could explain that the problem we're facing is that our product isn't launched yet. Our new product isn't launched yet. We're finishing it up and we have a lot of customers waiting to use it, uh, which is exciting, but means that we have to, we're under a lot of, lot of good pressure to get this done. So the goal, the solution, the mission is launch the product. From there, the product team knows that they have to fix up bugs and develop any remaining key features. Our startup growth team, that's the team that focuses on interacting with startups, has to run through each of the companies on our platform to help them make even more complete profiles on our site, setting an example for future users. Our analysis team, these are the people that actually analyze each startup that them to find out what they could be doing better. Our analysis team has to formalize and consolidate some of the remaining analysis procedures we want to put into place. Uh, our investor relations team is working with investors right now to bring some of our early investors onto the platform and set up their 
most complete profiles to set an example for future users. Our marketing team has to finish up some of the marketing materials that they've had in place that are all geared towards our launch. Um, and our operations team has to get everyone's contracts put together, all the platform's contracts put together and organized. So that includes things like the terms and conditions, the privacy policy, the investor use uh, contract, startup use contract, things like that, working with our legal team to get that put onto the site. And so this one strategy of product launch is guided by me, communicated by me, led by each of these team leads. But now each person, so the startup growth team knows that the marketing team is doing, you know, setting up the marketing materials for them. The investor relations team knows that they can count on the operations team to get the investor contracts in place. And all of them know that the product team is fixing bugs regularly to make sure this thing is done. So everybody knows from the top down what's going on at the company, what the focused goal is for this week, and exactly what they need to be doing to hit this larger goal. If that makes sense. So that's it kind of does, like a more, yeah. yeah, that's kind of a more practical lesson I've learned from college is this five paragraph order. Yeah, it's cool. That really stuck with you. Excellent. So, so I actually, it's now time for a student question. Uh, speaking of college, uh, cool. and uh, and today's question comes from Ali, who is a student majoring in social sciences. So I'm going to play you Ali's question, and let's hear it right now. Sure. Hi, my name is Ali. Um, I'm in the social sciences. I'm majoring in anthropology, psychology, and sociology. Uh, and I'm from Boston. I was wondering if you could discuss how you were able to adapt to a new work culture and, and what was most difficult for you. So what it's like to adapt to a new work culture, which I guess for you is a little bit different. It wasn't that you were starting, you, you were joining a big company, but however you want to respond to that question would be great. Yeah. I guess one of the big things for me was evolving out of this company that I had started with my friends and moving into this company that was going to compete with all of these other legacy players in the game. You know, uh, I'm 21 and that sounds really great for a headline, but the reality is, is I'm competing for my customer's attention against people that have been in this industry since before I was born. And at the end of the day, if I'm not building enough value for my customers, they're not going to care that I'm 21. They're going to care about the platform that I have in front of them. And on top of that, I've been working and bringing on people to the company that aren't in their 20s, that are in their 30s, 40s. I mean, we've had people in this company up to their 60s that have been working on things. I've been pitching investors that are in their 80s. So I've been working with people kind of across every generation. Um, and one thing that I'm starting to see as the most important and one lesson that I'm starting to learn a lot, I'm learning a lot about what it means to be a leader. I'm learning a lot about what it means to pass the baton and take something that I'm passionate about and take a vision that I'm passionate about and communicate it to a team that could actually execute on it. You know, I, when I look at 1H and when I look at my team, they have to be able to execute on an incredibly large, intricate, and elaborate mission. The one that we've established at 1H. We've set out to consolidate the scattered startup ecosystem in a way that empowers startups, empowers investors, and everyone that's party to startup development to be able to work together effectively and meaningfully. And right now, we have to do all of that with the vision of connecting every single startup investor and everyone involved from around the world 
we have to do that with a team of 16 people. And for them to do that, I have to learn and I have to be able to guide each individual of the company to be their most effective selves. So one thing I've learned is taking a lot of cues from my team and understanding my team. When I look at the people in my company who are the most effective and the most dedicated, they're the people that I've developed the closest working relationships with. Uh, that's because I'm able to listen to what they need for me to do. And I'm, I need to be able to listen to what they need from me to do what they want to, they need to do most effectively. Uh, and then tailor my leadership accordingly. So, you know, I always say this and I always think about this a lot. I don't need someone to write a textbook on my leadership style or any of that because I don't need to be the best leader that's taught about in a college classroom or in a, you know, or in a textbook. I need to be the best possible leader for the team at one age. I need to be the best possible leader to you at data to Amina, to all these people that are involved in the company and the leadership of the company who guides their teams. One thing I've learned is that leaders listen. And a great leader knows how to develop close enough relationships with the people that they work with directly to be able to understand what they need and tailor their leadership style to that individual's needs. So every single person you work with and every single person you interact with, either as you know whether or not you're the membership of the leadership of the company, or if you're brand new to the company, you want to get there. One thing that I've learned is that the people who move the fastest and the people that grow the fastest, who get my attention as you know one of the leaders of the company or who execute most effectively, are the people that took the time to listen, to understand, and to build enough of a working relationship where we can create a rapport. And if you're trying to impress a boss, you know, don't lick their boots, don't, don't gas them up but develop a relationship with them so that they know that they can count on you and they can talk to you candidly about achieving what it is that you guys have to achieve. Because at the end of the day, they need to be able to count on you. And so what I would say is the biggest lesson I've learned about entering the workforce is listen to what people need, whether or not it's you know how to be the best leader or how to achieve the project that you've been assigned most effectively. Listen to what people need and take each project and each situation as its own, and think, how can I do this specifically most effectively? If that helps. When I think about my team members, I think about each one individually. How can I be the best leader to this person individually? How do I communicate with them effectively? Yep. How do I communicate with this person effectively? If that makes sense. That absolutely makes sense. That's uh, it's a good lesson for, for, for anyone. And, and we're actually now getting to the End, and we have something called our quick fire round. And I'm going to ask you five sort of super quick questions. They're meant to be just quick answers, maybe two sentences each, but just off the top of your head, just to get some, just to sort of play with a few ideas really quickly. And the first question is in a couple of sentences, what gets you motivated at work? A few things. But in a couple of sentences, I'll give a good example. The other day, one of my team members was learning how to do yoga from another one of my team members. These two people had never met before they joined one age and now they're friends and they go for drinks together all the time and they hang out. And now they've developed this close relationship. When I think about the success of my company, uh, and I think like five, 10 years down the line, I don't think about how much money we have in the bank, even though that's obviously very important. I think about how large is this team and how much are they actually interacting with each other and, and, and befriending each other. To me, that's incredibly important. And when I think about the and again, this sounds kind of corny, but when I think about the friends that I've made along the way in building this, that's what gets me really excited. I'm, just, you know, 
just like in how in the military, when people are at war, you're not fighting while you are technically, yes, fighting for your country. What you're really fighting for are, you know, your buddies, your people on the ground with you, your people in the trenches with you. You're fighting to protect them and you're fighting to work with them. So most directly, what gets me up in the morning is coming back to seeing my team, seeing them in the office and working with them and talking to them, having a good time with them while we build this. I have a grand vision for the company. And I have you know, the next 5, 10, 15 years mapped out for this company. But as I said before, all of that's subject to change. So what gets me up every single morning is these people that I got to show up to. Another question. What makes, in your mind, a good mentor for young professionals? A good mentor calls you on your BS. I find myself, the people that I've learned the best lessons from are the people that tore apart my ego. They didn't give me some lessons about irrelevant things and they didn't just teach me a bunch of great, you know, buzz, you know, headlines or, you know, word candy about leadership. They gave me, they heard what I had to say and they said, Robert, that's incredibly dumb. And you and I both know that. You know what you're doing wrong. This is what you're doing wrong. Fix this about yourself. So to me, like the best mentors I've ever had were the ones that were able to look at me, tell me, you know, what the heck are you doing? This is the totally wrong thing. And you and I both know that. Don't try to sell me on anything otherwise and be honest with yourself. And seriously, every single mentor I've ever looked to, the ones that have done that are the ones that I've learned the most lessons from and carried. That's great. I like that. And then finally, if you could uh, rewind a couple of years, what's one piece of advice that you'd give to the you know, midstream college version of yourself? Learn how to say no. Ah, good. Say more. I found myself in the early stages of the company saying yes to everything, you know, either to attract the interest of an investor or to land a client that I knew would bring in key revenue for the company. I found myself saying yes to more than I could handle. And ultimately, what that turned into, or saying, you know, making promises to people and to employees while they were joining the company. And ultimately, what this did is it set me up for a lot of failure because I said yes to more than I could achieve. You know, my father told me this. He said, it's not about the business you take, it's about the business you don't take. And that's become more true than ever. And when you're this early, you take all the help you can get and you bring on all the people you can. But it's a lot easier to hire someone than to fire someone. And it's a lot easier to say yes to a client than it is to fail for a client. And that's something that I've seen firsthand. And I'll admit that fully that, that I've made those mistakes and they've cost me a lot more than than I would have liked. Now, obviously, we've made it and we've made it past these mistakes and we've learned from them and we've grown from them because we're able to learn on the fly and execute accordingly. And I know how to nip a problem in the bud now. But the best lesson I could have taught myself is learn when to say no. I mean, we just had a situation this morning where a client that we had spent way too much time on in the past, way too much mental energy, just reached out to us again to have us take on this project for them. And this is coming at a time where I know that our core objective is to launch our platform. And so while the money would have been really good on this client, and that would have been something that I could have chalked up as like a nice win and pat myself on the back for, I know that two weeks down the line, I'm going to have to delay the launch of my platform because I'm too busy working on this one client. I'm too busy dedicating resources there when I should be keeping my company in one mission. And so learning to say no and knowing to say no allows me and everyone that I'm working with to be able to stay focused on the things that we need to uh, without overpromising to anybody and performing again on the things that we set out to do. 
achieving those goals and knowing where we fit in together, hitting those and focusing on those. I think that's no. I think that I think that's great advice. I I actually have written a column about that myself in Inc.com, and I I I am fully aligned with you on that. And you know that actually brings us to the end of our chat. This is really it's been really interesting, and I wanted to thank you so much for for being our guest. Can you can you tell us you know if someone wants to learn more about you or certainly your company, where can we find you? Absolutely. Well, if you want to get to know more about 1H, just to visit 1H.com. Uh, go to oneh.com. And if you are running a startup, you're running an early stage company, or if you're an investor looking to invest into some early stage companies, definitely just go to 1H.com slash join. Create a brief on our site. Briefs take all of five minutes to complete and plug you into the ecosystem where thousands of startups and investors and people party to all of this and your growth will be able to interact with you directly and immediately. On top of that, never hesitate to just reach out to us. I try to end my day with zero emails in my inbox. So if you ever do reach out, I'm always happy to answer. I'm always happy to uh, grab a cup of coffee and talk and help you out in any way that I can. And you know, we're about to be launching 1H across the United States in a bunch of different cities. So keep an eye out for a 1H rep in your city too. Excellent. Uh, I'm sure people will. And thank you so much uh, for for taking the time to. Uh share your story with us. And, and I know it's going to be very useful and inspiring to, to the listeners. So thanks again for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Okay. So, um, so that was a very interesting episode. I would love to hear what you all thought about it. But first, let's see who we have here in the room. We have you, Chen. We have Allison. We have Sabrina. We have Allie. And we have Kevin and me. So what do you guys think? I really like how Robert is really proactive and actually went out of his way to do something that's considered kind of unconventional for his age. And that's like really admirable and inspiring to me. What specifically? Like just how he was able to like take really big steps and like found a company when he's barely like out of college. Yeah, not even out of college. (laughs) It's like, wow. Yeah, I really love this episode. I think for me, it's the most interesting one because I find it so realistic. Like when he said he used two hours to finish a paper and got a 15 minutes recording comments. (laughs) Yeah, and I learned about from how he talked about the the leadership. Like he said, how he cares everyone in his team and how he negotiates with everyone. I think that makes me think a lot think a lot like how I can like here's everyone in the future and also uh, when he said how he balanced his time when he was in college like he couldn't pay his full attention to academics or job and that reson- that resonated me to think like how I can balance my time because like everyone in this room has a lot of work to do, but at the same time, we also have a lot of like extracurriculum activities. So it helps me a lot to think about this. Yeah, I think that Robert's episode is really interesting because he was, he's just, his age is almost shifted forward in his experience. Like the fact that he <laughs> yeah. was doing all of these things from the time he was in high school, it's as if he's been having this experience for so much longer than his age would denote. Yeah. And I think what's really um, cool about that is that I also really related to kind of that feeling of having your hands in many baskets and not really being sure how to juggle your time. 
and something that I've realized from other episodes is maybe that's not something that ever resolves itself. It's something that we kind of build Mm -hmm. as we learn time management. I mean, even when you're out of school, if you're working on starting a venture or any other side project, you're always going to be juggling that with the work sphere, the domestic sphere, and any other like social aspects of your life. And so I think that he kind of had that step up and being able to really learn those skills from a really relatively young age. Yeah. Going off of that, I really like how he made his, uh, he, he chose his priorities, but didn't give up on school. Like he moved to New York mm-hmm. and still took night classes. I, I really like how he uh, realized the importance of um, education in school. And we didn't, by the way, we did not tell Sabrina to say that, even though this is a Brandeis-sponsored <laughs> podcast. <laughs> no, no, that was my own. <laughs> just, just, just for listeners to know. Any other thoughts around? Uh... Yeah, I mean, kind of picking off, piggybacking off of what um, Yuchin said earlier, I thought it was really great how he mentioned how um, what kind of motivated him through the day was uh, his team, like uh, seeing the re- friendships and relationships that were mm-hmm. being bred in between complete strangers at first. Um, and I think that's really something that's on trend right now in a sense that like people are trying to really enforce a better sort of work culture and more than just kind of an office relationship to make the environment more beneficial for everyone. So I thought that was really great that he uh, emphasized that, especially at also similarly to what Kevin said at just like at only 21, he's definitely seems like his business is making him go beyond his years. So, well, going off of the te- like team, speaking of teams and members, I thought one of the really important points that stuck with me was that he mentioned that leaders have to listen in order to be good leaders. And it's very interesting to see, like, because some people, they may have a good, like, way to talk and encourage people, motivate people to work, but it doesn't exactly matter as much until they are listening and know how to encourage people or like how to um, make sure the team gets what they need to do done like the quickest and most efficiently and as successful as possible. And I thought like you don't really think of leaders as someone who listens. You think of the people who like work under the leaders are the ones who are listening all the time. But in reality, it really is the leaders who are listening all the time in order for everything to get done properly. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a great point. What, what if, I'm just curious, like, what if he were right here with us? What, what question would you ask him? What he was doing in high school at 15 when, <laughs> yeah. I, when he mentioned that, I, I wanted him to explain more about that because I've never, I've never heard of someone doing that much that early in high school, even. Yeah. <laughs> Adding to that, what motivated <laughs> him to do that in high school? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I took a look at his LinkedIn. and I mean, he mentions like being um, in high school, he was leading up like investments. That's not the first credential. I mean, before that, there's like another like two to three years of experience. It's almost as if he just like came out the gates running the second he <laughs> left middle school. Right. I think there are rumors he was born with like a little suit on. Yeah. <laughs> no, I thought it was a very interesting episode. Actually, this is one of the earlier ones we recorded too. And I'm and I'm really glad it's coming out now. Any anything else? No? All right. So 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 um so if you liked this episode, wait till you hear next week's episode. Each week we come out with a 
different episode, very interesting episode from a usually from a from a equally successful person, but from a very different professional field. And you'll hear some other stories, very interesting stories. If, if this is your first time encountering from the dorm room to the boardroom, please uh, check out our previous episodes as well. You can find us on Instagram at, now I know it, from the dorm room podcast. Mm-hmm. That's our Instagram handle. And we're also on Twitter and Facebook at from the dorm room. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to From the Dorm Room to the Boardroom. If you're interested in learning more about the work that I do and helping people step outside their comfort zones and transition successfully into the professional world, please visit my website, www.andymolinsky.com. That's A-N-D-Y-M-O-L-I-N-S-K-Y.com. And also feel free to email me directly at Andy at andymolinsky.com with any feedback or ideas for guests for future podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Brandeis University's International Business School. By teaching rigorous business, finance, and economics, connecting students to best practices, and immersing them in international experiences, Brandeis International Business School prepares exceptional individuals from around the globe to become principled professionals in companies and public institutions worldwide. Thank you so much for listening.